This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just three bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. You must excuse me. I've grown quite queer. I... This hasn't been easy, I know. But you've learned a lesson. A lesson in honesty. Honesty to yourself and honesty to others. That lesson will stand you in good stead all your life. I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Now I'm catching on to why that's so. Why that's so. Why that's so. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to yet another episode of Tales from Astlantis. We are your hosts, Curly Tlapoyawa. And Ruben Ariano Tlacatecat. What is going on, homie? How you been? What's the deal? Just chilling, chilling, and getting ready for the start of the semester. Seems like I've been teaching nonstop, which I have because I've been teaching all summer. Seems like so, you've been teaching nonstop for the last five years. Five years. <laughs> I need a vacation. You yeah, do. You come come to New Mexico, man. In fact, I'm 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 going I'm going to be in Los Angeles for the Western History Association conference in, in late October. So I don't know if any of you, early or our guest Brandon, who we're going to introduce here in a minute, are going to be in LA around that time but you know I'd, I'd like to connect you know we can hang out and go do a thing but i think the last time i was in los angeles was when i was there with you curly um we went to what was the name of that conference that they that, do out of csu that uh, was the mesoamerican Mesoamerican, yeah and that was back in what 2014 or 15 that was a long time ago it's been got, almost about 10 years yeah and we wound yeah. up taking well i wound up taking the wrong turn back <laughs> oh, back, yeah, because we drove. So I flew into Albuquerque, and then from there we drove out uh, to uh, L.A. And then on the way back, we we took the the wrong turn to the, the scenic uh, route. Scenic route. Well, <laughs> we got so deep into conversation that I'm like, why did we just pass a roller coaster? <laughs> there are no roller that, coasters. That drive was the seed for the current project that we're doing now, uh, the Tales from Aslantes. Back yeah. then, like those conversations that we were having on on those road trips. Absolutely. So, so I'm glad it happened. Right. So I would like to welcome, as Ruben mentioned, our guest today, Brandon Moran Maxwell, the producer, director, and editor of the documentary film American Homeboy. How you doing, Brandon? What's up, dude? I'm glad to be with you guys. Yeah, it's nice to welcome. finally connect. I uh I went I like to fish. So uh, when I get some free time, I'll go fishing sometimes during the summer. And uh, last year when I went fishing, I downloaded a bunch of your episodes. Oh, nice. Sat out there in the middle of nowhere fishing, listening to your podcast. Very cool. Where do you go nice. fishing? Uh, I like to fish in eastern Oregon if I can. There's some really good desolate places. And you go out there, there's nobody. And uh, you can go out there into the canyons, hang out there for a few days. You know, there's coyotes walking around, rattlesnakes. It's a lot of beautiful nature um and so i really like that you know i like to walk into the water or kayak things like that so awesome yeah that sounds great 
Yeah. That's how I spent most of my last career. Oh, okay. Just out, out in the middle of nowhere. I did archaeology for about eight years. So. Yeah, I find I think that's awesome. That's one of those things that I think is really cool about you. There's a lot of stuff. <clears throat> so, you know, I literally just got done watching the documentary. And uh, well done, man. Great job. Yeah, same here. Thank you for sharing the, the screener. Now, is yeah. the screener different from the one that's actually being shown? Or is it the complete... Uh, it's the uh, yeah, it's the complete one, but okay. it's obviously it has media screener across it. So, mm-hmm. so uh, when yeah. we bootleg it, you'll know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I uh, I think it's definitely a film that should be seen in the theater. It's better in the theater, I think. Um, I've been really surprised on the audience engagement during both showings, uh, which were packed, by the way. I mean, in Portland, we just did three hundred people. At the nice. Hollywood Theater. So we're actually doing a second showing in Portland. And then in L.A., we ended up having to do second showing. We'll probably do a third, fourth, and fifth showing in L.A. But, yeah. So the turnout's been really great um, in, in multiple states so far. But the reactions by the audience have been the same in, in all the parts. So I think that's interesting. I didn't anticipate that people would laugh or people would clap, um, let alone in the same parts in different states. Yeah, so it's like those scenes in, in the, the Zoot Suit uh movie a version of, of the play where they where they show the the, the, the audience and there's people laughing and crying <laughs> yeah yeah that's kind of what i'm i'm, I'm imagining yeah. what's going on with with your screenings cool sure it's it's always very rewarding when um because i've i've done films and when you're sitting there with one it's nerve-wracking uh, i don't know if you felt that same way when you're watching your movie with an audience full of yeah. people and you're like damn is this gonna you know, do, the things that I think are going to resonate or work, do they actually resonate or work in front of an audience? That's a very um, nerve wracking yeah. process. And it's it, it feels so good when it does. Right. Sure. Yeah. And you're a film buff. So I, I'm sure you appreciate some of this, the process of making a film. And, you know, it's not an easy task. You get to the end of the line and um, you start to worry about the little things like, is the DCP going to work? You know, did they do their job, even though mm-hmm. that's their job to get it right? Um, you always, you know, I, I'm the type of person that I kind of assert control as much as I can over everything because I want the buck to stop with me. And I trust myself more than I trust other people. Mm-hmm. But sometimes to my own detriment, it makes me, you know, why I don't, you know, I just have to trust that these companies that that's what they're meant to do. They did it right. So mm-hmm. um, I think for me during that first screening, obviously, I was hoping that the theater, everything went okay. You know, that the DCP was all right. And for the listeners, the DCP is called a, it's a digital cinema file or some a digital. What does it stand for? DCP is a digital cinema projection. Is something that like that. Um, and it's basically a file that a drive that allows theaters to play the film because it's different than what you would normally play on your laptop. So, yeah, the, the death of actual film in movie theaters is kind of a drag yeah but it's also a blessing because it's far less expensive now to uh screen movies than it is to like strike prints and ship prints and then hope that the prints don't get destroyed and then return to you in uh in a reasonable fashion yeah and some some film uh theaters are even playing regular like prores files now oh wow yeah yeah it's crazy like so it's technology's come a long ways so the uh, the documentary American Homeboy Portrait of a Street Revolution is going to be playing here in Albuquerque August 22nd through August 24th. 
That's Tuesday to Thursday, and it's playing twice a day at 3.30 and once again at 8 p.m. So I definitely um, recommend everybody in Albuquerque, you get the opportunity to go check out this movie. What was the, um, I don't know, what was the the moment, the the impetus that like made you start this journey, right? Like how long ago did you decide, you know, I'm going to do this documentary and this is the subject matter. And, and this is something that is important to me. And I think other people should see it. Yeah. Well, I've always been, I think, fascinated by Cholo culture, uh, homeboy culture, lowrider culture. I mean, I was around it my whole life and I was a part of it. And um, I've always thought it was an extremely nuanced and complex subculture. And I always thought it was interesting on how it kind of formulated alongside other movements. You know, you have these different tracks that kind of came out of World War II, lowrider, lowriders and, and, and cholos and um, the civil rights movement, arts and just all these different things. And you have overlap sometimes between these different movements. And uh, there's a lot of nuance and, and having known so many guys and having been involved in it, I just felt like it's never really been contextualized the way it should be. Um, or explored maybe in depth like it could be. And so um, it's always been in the back of my mind. And I think when I got the opportunity to raise some money to make the film, I just figured might as well, you know, let's let's try it. You know, I think right now when you see when you see videos about this subculture, you know, it's almost always the same thing. You know, you see the, the woman airbrushed on the hood of a car, you a bunch of hip hop music in the background. The video is like five, six, seven minutes. Or you get some YouTuber that treks into East L.A., does a few videos, posts them, everybody oohs and ahs at the tattoos, and that's about it. And there's so much more there. And uh, there's some endearing qualities, and there's some more complex qualities. And so I just wanted to highlight, I think, the range of personalities from those subcultures and the range of, um, I, I think, the the different, I just the nuances in general, you know. There's, there's such a range of thoughts and people and experiences. Mm-hmm. That, that's what makes the culture so compelling and beautiful, in my opinion. We'll be back after a quick break. Have you picked up your Mexica calendar for the year 12 Flint? Or how about a paperback copy of The Four Disagreements? Just visit TalesFromAstlantis.com for all the latest merchandise and show some love for your favorite podcast. That's TalesFromAstlantis.com for all the latest merchandise. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and I I think you did a good job of that, of just exploring all the different aspects of it. I mean, there was some stuff that you were only able to touch on a little bit. Yeah. That were like Chicanos and punk rock, right? It's like oh, a, a, a brief little moment. And that's like my jam right there. And I'm like, damn, there should be like, this could be like a, a mini series. And, and one episode could just be, you know, Chicanos mm-hmm. and punk rock. And you 100% know, agree. Yeah. And Chicanos and You know, and that's hip-hop. come up. That's the, that has come up more than anything else. Chicanos really? and punk rock. Yeah. More than anything else. People said, oh, you should have talked about Chicanos and punk. Um, and I, I thought about it and it's tough when you're telling a story. I feel like one of the difficult things is, you know, you got to cut things out. And I I feel like part of the problem with the quality of some of the things that are out there is that people try to put everything in or they don't come up with one cohesive story. You know, Mm -hmm. we're telling a story. We want it to be compelling and emotional and dramatic. And so that means that you go along with 
what you get from the sound bites and the story you're kind of trying to tell. And then it means there are some things that have to be cut out and you don't get to explore. But the good thing is, it's such a rich culture, it leaves room for plenty more things to be yeah, talked about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you know, as, as, as a historian, that's one of the things that I picked up on too, that, that Curly just brought up this, this idea that, you know, there's so many different threads that you're kind of tugging on in this one documentary that you did. Um, for instance, uh, the, the Chicano punk, but also I was I was thinking um, of the connection between the Pachuco and the transition where you go from Pachuquismo into Cholo culture. I feel like there's still more room for for a, a deeper sort of uh, exploration of how that transition happens that what you could do in, in, in this uh, documentary, because in this documentary, you're trying to expose a white audience to what it means to be a Cholo, an American homeboy. Uh, which you know, uh, most people when they think of American homeboys and cholos, you know, they always look to the to the West Coast and to Los Angeles, and you know that's the most prominent city. But this is a phenomenon that stretched throughout the house in the Southwest. You know, it was, absolutely, it was in 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 New Mexico, it was in Arizona, it was in Texas, right? And so one of the things that I wanted to see if maybe you could uh, going back to what Curly asked uh, at the beginning, like what sort of prompted you, what was the inspiration to get you, um, you know going with this documentary and, and it's it's related to this i think you were the the author of this article that I, that i read many years ago i think that's that was my first exposure to you where you you talk about the dress of the cholo and how you i think that was you where you make these connections between like uh the adoption of the flannel and how that was something that was supposedly associated with surfing culture was that you or, or am I thinking no, of someone else? No, yeah, that, I don't. I didn't write anything about that. No, I okay, mean I've okay. written about you know some of that stuff in the past, but yeah. Um, so I was, I was I was wondering if if like you know if there was a way that um, that was that something that, that was cut out of the uh, the original you know going back to what you were saying about things that need to be left in, things that need to be cut out as you're finalizing the the project. And, and and this idea of, of the evolution of the of the cholo culture, how that um, um, like was there any explanation done or exploration uh, done in terms of of how that development emerges? Uh, and I mean, because I see a little bit coming through in, in the documentary where you you talk about how it was influenced by uh, you know prison culture, um, the military, and labor, right? And, and mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. but I feel like. There's there, there was more room there. I, I was I was like, oh, are we going to get this this uh, you know explanation of uh, as to how that actually happened? And I don't know if maybe if you could say you know speak a little bit more on on that subject uh, for um, people that well, don't really understand that. It it just depends on what aspect of like cholo culture you're talking about. You know, I mean, I think it's funny when I talk to other guys who are like gang members and stuff. There's the tendency I think with most of us uh, that uh, people tend to look for answers that aren't there. They want these complex um, answers that, oh, well, this links back to how they the natives used to do it. This is why they wear their socks mm -hmm. high, or this is where da, da, da. When in reality, you know, I mean, it, some <laughs> of it is just fashion. I mean, it was as simple as that, you know. Um, mm -hmm. there, it's, it's interesting. There, there's a police officer in LA back in the 60s, and he was talking about how when, when guys started raising bringing up their socks, that they used to tell him it was because it was feminine to show their legs. They felt mm. that way with their shorts. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what he said. You know, there's a million different opinions about some of these things. Um, Luis talks in the film about, you know, why they buttoned only the top of their flannels. Um, and, you know, I think the most 
reasonable explanation is that uh like we talked about in the film is that it was a mixture of labor it was a mixture of prison and uh it was a mixture of the military that's why you saw the white t-shirts that's why you saw the khakis that's why you saw the creases and that's why you saw the way that everybody stood you know everybody was very proper in the way they used to carry themselves at least 50s through the early 90s and then you got into the 2000s and now and it's pretty much all gone I know that's something that, that I've heard you say before that, that there's this sense of, and, and I see it too, even before I heard you say it, like I witnessed it too, like here in Dallas, like the transition from what growing up in, in, in the late eighties, early nineties, like that was, that was my culture as well. And, and seeing that transformation, how there isn't this sense of pride in the way that you show yourself in public, you know, mm-hmm. it's like people just go out dressed, like they just got out of bed. Right. And back yeah, then, literally. you know, if, you know, people took more, deliberate care as to how they looked in public and cholos you know you know that was you know to be a cholo didn't just mean to to play the part or or what have you but like you there was a certain way that you dressed and you and like here in dallas like um you know we we, we wore the the dickies and we wore the flannels and the white t-shirts right and but you had to have your dickies creased and your shirts creased and all that and nowadays you see you know so-called homeboys out in, in public and you're like that's a homeboy that's a, okay that's that's mm-hmm. different <laughs> yeah it's not, not what i remember but okay yeah it's it's interesting i think well for one to go back to the previous question part of the reason why i didn't explore some of those more in-depth topics was because i wanted to make the film for a broader audience Right. Because these are kind of like internal debates that we have. They can go forever. And there's a ton of internal debates uh, and they're fascinating debates. Like, don't get me wrong. I think they're interesting. Uh, but I think for the average person, I wanted to create a cursory kind of hundred year overview of the basics, just the basics. You'd be surprised how many people don't know anything about Sleepy Lagoon, for example. They don't yeah, know anything yeah. about the Zoot Suit Riot. So just that alone, people are like, really, that happened? I had no idea. And so to, to say we're going to get into all these other transitions and the intricacies of those things, let's start with the basics first, with the broader general public to where they can be like, oh, so that's why they're so cars are important to them or the fashion and the style and, and their sense of having been here before Europe, you know, the Europeans came here and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like most people just don't know any of this stuff. So that was really the goal of the project. And there's definitely lots of more in-depth conversations that we can have. But I well, wanna... that's one of the things that I really appreciated was really early on in the film, it's it's just a statement that's made that Chicano is an indigenous identity, that we're indigenous people, that we're connected to this land. And there's no like, you know, explaining away why we're indigenous or it's just like, no, we're indigenous and this is who we are. And, and then the story starts, right? And I appreciated that because... There just seems to be a lot of um, like this this anti Chicano attitude, especially coming from like the Latinxers and and that crowd. Which you know I'm fine, whatever. But just to see it it put out there like that, like you know, no, no, this is who we are, and whether you like it or not, <laughs> this is this is this is who our people are, and we're not going to change, and we're not going to like acquiesce or change who we are to to placate other people's sensibilities and just this idea of like you know that's where like like the ikea comes from right whenever i think of chicano attitudes that's like the whole well you know and what you know like this is who i am what do you want right and when that guy said you know we're not gonna hide it we're gonna crank it up 
Yeah. Like that, that really resonated with me. You know, this idea of, well, we'll turn this shit up to 11. We don't, <laughs> we don't give a shit. Yeah. So it's was, a very, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the culture is very misunderstood and yet so very proud and flamboyant in that context. Like, uh, I, I mean, I think Chicanos are some of the most misunderstood people out there. Cause it's like, if, if you're just not around it or you didn't grow up around it, you're not part of it. Um, I guess people, for whatever reason, they just have a hard time getting it. And yeah, to me, it yeah. feels so simple because I'm like, I mean, it's it's not hard. Like it's, it doesn't. <laughs> but I talk to people all the time in media and academia, and they they just don't get it. And especially you get activists, younger kind of Gen Z activists and stuff that that don't get it either. And sure. uh, it just seems to be the story of that movement throughout its entire history that it's just different, and a lot of people don't get it or like it, but mm-hmm. they sure as hell love it. And they're not going to change. And so, along those lines, um, one of the, the people that you interviewed, Lieutenant, I forget his name, the Lieutenant who who came Richard? from a family of yeah, Richard of of people who were in the military, and then he decided to go into law enforcement. Yeah. And and you know, it I, I loved it because you had you had a, um, a diversity of voices in 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 your documentary, and he's one of them that kind of stood stood out to me because. Like on the one hand, he's he's saying yes, Chicano culture it's, it's proud and and it's wonderful, uh, and you know you can take it for its good parts and its bad parts. But at the same time, he was trying to insinuate, and I think a lot of Chicano activists who you know were around at the time, who's, who are still with us, <laughs> who are up there in age, uh, when he says that 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 the Chicano movement was basically a lot of instigators and agitators that were being. Um, uh, sent by Russia and the red Chinese. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking, oh no, what are you doing, man? Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't I'm know how to I differ feel about on that, that part. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that I wanted to was just show that um, a lot of these people are very, they are nuanced and uh, they are complex. And I think that there's sometimes there's a tendency to paint even guys like Richard with a broad brush, just like there is a tendency to paint people who drive lowriders with a broad brush and really when you get behind the weeds you find out that like people are the culmination of a lot of different experiences and uh you know he grew up in compton he came from a chicano family he's got family that are gang members um and there's a lot of guy uh law enforcement officers like him till this day you know and so i I, and you know i thought it was interesting because he's one of the original guys you know he was back there in the 60s and 70s getting in shootouts um some really famous shootouts and you know he's a tough dude but but he's he's also nuanced, you know. You mm-hmm. you hear when he, you you see him talking that he's not for necessarily locking everybody up and just throwing away the key. Um, <clears throat> so, but then he'll turn around and then make some broad statement about how he can't stand Pachuco. So yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of yeah. funny, you know. <laughs> was, yeah. Like whoa. <laughs> well, it's the same reason I had Gil Gil American Cholo in in the film. People say, well, why did you have him? You know, I mean, he's Central American. Mm-hmm. Well, because there's a lot of Central Americans who identify as Chicanos. Yeah. And you you just can't ignore that. And so, you know, he represents a demographic of people who grew up in the Southwest who are also um, influenced by Chicano culture, who marched with Chicanos and alongside Chicanos and have this kind of interesting relationship as well with with Chicanos. So um, I wanted to really highlight those different those different personalities. And I think it makes the film more compelling and dramatic, I think. And, and I think it makes sense. I mean, I don't want to get into this whole, you know, tangent I'm on on non-Chicanos who are Chicanos uh, and but we can just look at for instance Salvadorians right like there there's a subsect of Salvadorians that grew up in in, in Los Angeles 
who who adopted Chicano Cholo culture and transported it back to their home country. And then this whole new thing emerges out of that, right? Yeah. Like, we don't need to get into that, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, and that's but another then, fascinating conversation. Right. But then you also have, like, like, the Japanese people that have embraced Chicano culture. And a lot of people think that it's a current phenomenon. But I remember, because I even have, like, I've gone through my my old uh, Laura magazines, uh, the, the collection that's still left over from all the magazines that I collected over the years. But... But I remember at least going back to the 90s, seeing yeah. in Lowrider magazine, yeah. Japanese images, like they were already starting this thing back in it's the It's nothing 90s. new. Yeah. Right? New, new York new. Times. I saw these columns by like New York Times and LA Times in the past five or six years, you know, talking about Japan. And I'm like, man, I mean, Japan has been doing it since the 80s. I mean, I remember all homeboys talking about Japan back then and and uh, in Lowrider magazine. And, and, and in fact, they had their own Lowrider magazine out there it wasn't called the writer it was called something else really um but so they've been doing it for a really long time and they have the respect of a lot of the the guys in that community because they really yeah. show a lot of pride in what they do the w- speaking of lowrider magazine um i you know you, you talk about the origin of the magazine and how it was one of the original voices that just showed our community as we were right in that you could be in a uh smith's or an albertson's or whatever and then look at the the magazine rack and then like there were chicanos in a magazine it was like holy shit and i'd pick it up and you know i was never really like a car guy but there was that uh the rasa report mm-hmm. that was always in there so I, I would always get the lowrider magazine and and read and roberto simply rodriguez would write for lowrider so there was yeah very you know this cool cultural connection there and you said that it was you know by chicano well somebody in the movie says it's it was something that was made by Chicanos for Chicanos. And I was wasn't a little that, surprised. Wasn't that in the magazine? Didn't they, like, there was a little, like, a tagline in some of the earlier issues. I remember like that slogan? it said, by Chicanos. Yeah, for Chicanos. Yeah, so both, both, it's, you know, San Jose is a fascinating place because Lowrider Magazine was born out of San Jose and so was Teen Angels. Was born I was, out of I was just going to bring up Teen Angels. And so were the homies characters. The homies right, characters right. were also born. So like three huge pinnacles of what you would call a part of kind of modern Chicano culture all came out of San Jose, not L.A. Um, not that it, I guess it matters, but I guess my point is that lots of different cities have, have contributed to the growth of this movement, including El Paso in Texas. Well, you know, so, Madrid was from San Angelo, Texas, if you want to go that far back. There as we well. go. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I definitely. And, and in a lot of those earlier issues, there's a lot you see a lot of politics, like, you know, a lot more politics and, and stuff like that. Like you were saying, they had um, that report and. So, yeah, I think that there's always been a little bit of uh, the Chicano movement fused into those into those things. So, But there was a bit of, of like um, um, antagonism between Lowrider Magazine and Teen Angels for a while. Because I remember I used to get Teen Angels over here at the Bazaar. And, and, and there's this one issue that really stuck with me because for a while they were going after Lowrider Magazine. And I don't want to say the... the the slur word, but they were comparing the 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 Lowrider magazine uh, logo to sort of Japanese sort of mm. stereotypes, mm. right? Of with the slanted eyes and and the and the mustache and things like that. And they even called it, you know, the the slur word for a Japanese, mm. right? The 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 slur magazine. That's what they called it. And wow. and so I do remember that there was that that sort of antagonism because I think Teen Angel 
was beginning to sort of slip and Lowrider magazine was beginning to rise. Well, so, so, so Teen Angel felt like we have a different audience. They were, they were trying to make a distinction. Our audience is more about the streets and about the cholo culture. And Lowrider magazine is just about all those people that just want to be part of a car club. You know, like they were trying to make a distinction between the, the, the two audiences uh, that each man. Well, so, you know, David Holland, who did Teen Angel, he came from Lowrider. He began at Lowrider and he okay. was one of their kind of comic book guys, you know, or he did art for them. Um, but he wanted to focus more on, he kind of saw what I, what I see and what a lot of people see was like, there's a whole another culture associated with just the cars. That's really fascinating. You know, these very flamboyant, uh, prideful personalities and this, this whole subculture. And he wanted to explore that a little bit more. And so eventually they started Teen Angel and they started featuring, um, you know, photos from across the Southwest and things like that. And a lot more art from prison and from that culture that was uh, kind of a step beyond what Lowrider was doing at that time. So yeah, they, I don't know what the relationship was between them, but I know that he began with Lowrider and Teen Angel was the name that he wrote under when he was with Lowrider. Mm-hmm. So if you, you look at some of those earlier issues of Lowrider, you'll see that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting though. And uh, you know, but ultimately both of them had a huge impact you know, I think on the growth of at least urban Chicano culture, which love it or hate it is with us today, right? Not everybody's yeah. a fan of it, right? but right. Um, it's it's there. And I always tell people this, you know, they say, oh, why do you focus so much on, on the Cholo stuff? And um, well, for one, the movie's called American Homeboy. So, you know, it's got yeah. a lowrider yeah. on literally covered. That's what it's about. Uh, but, you know, it's against the backdrop of the civil rights movement happening kind of at the same time. So, of course, we touch on those things. But, um, you know, when you Google chicano today right what do you see what's the first thing you see well you see tattoos you see lowriders you see all that stuff you have to dig around before you start getting into the politics of of the chicano movement and i think by and large uh the aesthetics of it love it or hate it bad or good has largely won out i think over the politics of the 60s not necessarily the politics of, of the chicano movement in general or where it came from and the indigenous roots but i think the politics of the 60s uh that was probably the more domineering force during that time over time those professors have gone on they've kind of joined academia or they moved on and the aesthetics have grown more popular and they've become commercialized and they've expanded and so I, I just think it's interesting how uh, in some ways the market is spoken and that's what people have decided to keep. And whereas the politics, which were at times maybe too divisive for some people, um, have largely gone wayside with mm-hmm. the exceptions of, of some things. So I think that's interesting because even though not all Chicanos are Cholos, all Cholos identify as Chicanos. And so you can't ignore that. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that kind of what Sandy Luna, one of, one of your... Um... Uh, interviewees in the documentary she's kind of um, uh, she feels a little conflicted right by this idea that you know she's she's proud that Chicano culture is getting its due but at the same time she laments the commercialization of Chicano mm-hmm. culture at the, so it's it's, it's uh, kind of what you're speaking to right that that despite all the trials and tribulations that Chicanos have had to undergo over the last couple centuries that you know, here we are still today, and now we're getting some recognition. And and some people feel conflicted about it, mm-hmm. and some people some people think that it's the the greatest thing, right? Like, yeah. finally, well, you know, we're I getting felt our conflicted due. when I saw that. Um, was it a Seven Eleven commercial? Oh, oh the yeah, rider bikes. Yeah, yeah. 
it's a well shot commercial. And part of me was like, oh, hell yeah, that's badass. And then part of me is like, God damn it, 7 Eleven. You know, it, it's, it's so weird because I remember getting my first tattoos um, when I was just a, a youth. And, um, you know, back then we had, we'd take an E string from a guitar and then we'd wire it to a little motor and we'd, we'd dip it in like, uh, I forget, it was like India ink or something. And then that's how we tattooed each other. And um, now you walk into a tattoo shop and you say, I want a Chicano tattoo right here off this off this wall, the Chicano wall. <laughs> and I never thought I would see a day where people are getting smile now, cry later or me vida loca and all these things tattooed on them. When I'm like, man, all these things are like in the 80s and 90s. You had to put in work for these tattoos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They meant <clears throat> that's like getting a, a Russian prison tattoo and just like walking around yeah well it. <laughs> it, it is weird it's it's bizarre because i grew up in that era where it did mean something and i'm old enough now to see it to where it's a little bit more watered down and um now i know i guess how polynesians feel you know <laughs> yeah, you right i'm like <laughs> like this is so weird but it's i've asked a lot of those guys though in um in my film about how they feel about some of this and you know um you know, Chuko, I think, had an interesting answer. This was kind of when we talked. Uh, I don't think this was in the film, but just generally knowing him and talking with him. He was like, well, look, you know, I mean, it's it's mainstream. It's there. So um, he's an artist. And the best thing you can do is have somebody go to him and at least get it done right. Yeah, um, and, yeah. you know, he he'll do it right. Um, and so, I, I, you know, it's who am I to say, you know, I'm conflicted at times as well, because I know so many homeboys who've gone on to start fashion companies uh art tattooing businesses things like that and they're making livings for themselves doing what they love and it's better than gangbanging um absolutely but the other flip side of it is you know you have those growing pains of becoming mainstream in a lot of ways and then with that you get some aspects of it that are watered down well you know speaking of mainstreaming and and, and this is something that you touch on on the um uh, in the documentary how before, I mean, you had lowriders that that show up in, in various films and like TV shows going back to the 70s. You, you show Gypsy Rose and Chico and the Man. Uh, and believe it or not, I watched uh, The Jerk recently. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. That movie. And there's there's a scene Steve in Martin. there, right? There's a scene in there where, where the, the Chicanos pull up yeah. and the lowrider at <laughs> the that. gas station. And I'm thinking, damn, you know. And, and and so fast forward to to the nineties where where you had you know the the gangster rappers Ice Cube and those guys um, Dr Dre and Snoop Dogg you know in their videos they have the lowriders and it was always my understanding that mo all mostly all those lowriders came from Chicano car clubs mm -hmm. but you hardly ever hear that acknowledgement or that recognition how today i mean there's a show right now on I'm, I'm not sure which streaming or which channel it's on tex-mex or whatever it is and then there's another one where they're showing like like american hot cars or something and they have them they have hot rods with hydros and i'm like okay that's a thing now i mean i guess it's been a thing for a while but it's 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 jarring to me because i'm not accustomed to seeing these these you know for lack of a better term white guy hot rods with with hydraulics you know i'm used to seeing chicano lowriders with hydraulics not hot rods right and so and, and but there's no acknowledgement of of the fact that it was chicanos who developed and 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 made this thing you know a global phenomenon so i mean i think i think i don't know where i'm going with this i'm but you know just the, the fact that you're able to show this in a documentary hopefully will bring back a little bit of that recognition that chicanos have been um not given over the years 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I think also there's the question of do we need that recognition? You know, I know everybody's so kind of proud of their their culture that it's like, well, we're going to do what the real ones are going to do what they love either way, regardless of what everybody else thinks. But I think there's the human tendency to want some recognition. And I think that there's some basics. I think most people in this world see a lowrider and think Mexican. They're like, or, you know, they'll say Mexican, but really what they mean is Mexican-American. Uh, most people think of lowriders as being associated with Mexican-Americans. I think most people um, will see aspects of Cholo fashion and think Mexican-American. I think the problem is that's where it stops. They never go beyond that surface to understand what's behind all of that and why it's so endearing and so important to so many people. <clears throat> and so that I would like to see. I was, you know, I, I'm surprised. I, I t when I was in Atlanta, for example, I used to work with youth in Kansas City and Atlanta, um, basically what you what they call at risk youth in, in the school system. And I don't really know what the proper term is for it, but kids who, you know, they would try to help um, not get involved with gangs and drugs and stuff like that. And so I would talk with them and. And it was always fascinating to me that they thought like the whole black and gray tattooing thing that you see guys with like, um, you know, all these basketball players and stuff like that, that they, they thought that was something that was born out of the black community. Like, um, and they thought Mexicans were stealing that. Mm -hmm. And um, that was fascinating to me. And the white t-shirts and all that, they, they all thought that was out of the East Coast and out of Atlanta. And then it made its way over to the West Coast. They didn't know who Mr. Cartoon was. Mm -hmm. They didn't know any any of that and so i think that's interesting and you see it on our side too because there was a big comment section that i got tagged in and i get tagged a lot on social media and i every once in a while i'll look at what i'm getting tagged in not all the time but sometimes i will and there's this huge debate uh between a bunch of black youth and mexican-american youth about zoot suitors mm -hmm. and there was a bunch of mexican youth in there insisting that Mexican Americans invented the use the zoot suit, and there's no way we ever were influenced by the black community. <laughs> and I kind of slapped myself in the head. I'm like, ah, I'm like that. You know, that's not true. Like there was there we were influenced by. Right. Now we did it differently. Yeah. Um. And we we Mexicanized it as as uh, Luis says in in, in the film. Mm. But to say that we haven't influenced each other in different ways is is untrue. We have influenced <laughs> each other in different ways, and it works both ways. Um, I think Mexicans have, have a tendency to put an extra flamboyance and style in everything they do. So, I mean, whether it's hydraulics or whether it's zoot suits, either way, we we kept it, we adopted it, and we ran with it, and we tailored it and finalized it, you know? So regardless of really maybe where it started, we definitely are the ones that have owned it. And so, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, was, I was doing some research on the zoot suits many years ago, and uh, I need to go back and find the source, um, but... There was a source that was suggesting, I don't know how true it is, but they were suggesting that the Zoot Zoot made its way from across the pond, that it actually originated uh, not in New York City with the jazz, but in Europe, but in, Europe in France. It was yeah. the type of fashion that, had, that was going on in the early 1900s, kind of around right. the same time as the flapper uh, era. And then finally, when it made its way to, to America, it was like in the late 20s and 30s. And that's what, where it sort of combined with the emerging jazz culture that was beginning to to start yeah. at that time. So that's there's a book called Spilling the Beans uh, that touches on that. And okay. uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, he, he wrote, I forget who wrote the book, but it's a book I read, one of the books on my bookshelf. And so basically it started in Britain or somewhere in Europe. And it actually, they didn't do well, that, those clothing out there. So they kind of dumped them into poorer communities in the U.S., 
and they they eventually became a part of jazz culture. And uh, but for the black community, they really just lived and died in that era. They were associated with jazz, whereas the Mexican American community they really ran with it. Um, and it, and there was a bunch of legends that were born out of it. And I think things were only amplified in cities like Los Angeles, where they essentially banned the zoot suit. Um, and and you know they became signs of rebellion uh, for a lot of those youth, those first generation youth. So it took on a deeper meaning beyond just music. For sure, for sure. One of my favorite uh, quotes from the movie, from the entire documentary, is uh, when the guy said, and it's early on when he says, uh, if, if you don't know whether you're Chicano, <laughs> then you're not. <laughs> yeah, and, he hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, absolutely. Like 100%. And, and this leads into, you know, what we were talking about earlier with the... Um, Central Americans and the Hondurans and and, and guys that are uh, Ruben there with the T-shirt, um, you know, claiming Chicano identity. And for me, it's it's more like, well, are you accepted by other Chicanos? Like, because that's more legitimizing than anything, right? Like, do other Chicanos see you as as yeah, yeah, he's down, he's he's a Chicano. And to me, that's that's the the stamp, the golden stamp of approval right there is is. Are you gatekeeping? Keeping the Chicano. No, that, that's an interesting. That, I think that's an interesting threshold. I think some people would argue that if somebody identifies as a Chicano, they're a Chicano. I don't know if that's true either. Um, you know, when you say that, the first thing I think of is you have an emergence of Chicano conservatives. Like there's mm -hmm. there's a there's a, a quite a few. Uh, uh, and I so I had this debate with somebody. Um, <clears throat> And, and they, they consider were, themselves Chicanos, not just Mexican Americans. Well, you yeah. know, here in so, Dallas in the '80s, we had people who were Chicano yuppies that call themselves the Chuppies, the, the Chuppies, Los Chuppies. Well, straight so up. <laughs> I had I got in a debate with somebody, and they were like, "Well, these, this guy's not a Chicano because he voted for Trump, right?" Now, for the record, I don't like Trump. I've written plenty about Trump. Was never a fan of Trump, but I do know a fair amount of people who own lowriders, who've been in prison, who've been in gangs, all this stuff. Even guys in East LA who voted for Trump. Now. Who am I to go along and be like, you ain't Chicano when you've been low riding for 30 years, you're a third generation gang member and, you know, you know everything about the Chicano movement and you agree with everything with the Chicano movement. You just happen to be socially conservative. And so I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, there, I think there's more political diversity than we like to believe sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually OK with it because I think the some of the other basics are all still intact. There's just a fundamental disagreement sometimes on some of like sociopolitics, right? <clears throat> some of the sociopolitical elements associated with our with our government. I'm not a fan of government in general, so um, I, I you know my I'm pretty politically nuanced, but I, I I'm fascinated by that because I meet I see more and more of them online. I meet more and more of them, and uh, I don't know if it's an age thing. Uh, I think people tend to become a little bit more conservative in some areas as they get older. Um, or I don't know if it has to do with the region thing. I'm not sure. But well, uh, you know, I think I think the reason why people have uh, a little bit of, reser of a reservation to acknowledging someone who tends to be right leaning, uh, identifying as a Chicano is because when, when the term Chicano rose to prominence, because I mean, that's something that you kind of touch upon in the documentary. You know, but the term Chicano goes all the way back to at least the 19th century, right? It predates the 20th century. Um, 
But during the Chicano movement, to call yourself a Chicano carried with it a certain baggage in terms of your political, social, and cultural inclinations. Yeah. Right? And so the antithesis of Chicanismo was Hispanidad. And so most people who were conservative at the time and, you know, running up through the 80s and into the 90s and to the present, you know, it changes over time. You go from being Hispanic to being Latino and now Latinx. But even though now the Latinx is a little bit more nuanced than it used to be. Right. And to call yourself a Chicano meant not only that you were Mexican-American or that you identified with Mexican-American culture if you weren't Mexican-American or Chicano. But not only that, by extension, you also had this set of ideas socially, politically and culturally that you sort of at least uh, ascribe to maybe not, you know, in, in a deep, in-depth way, but at least on a superficial level, you understood that that's where you fell politically. And so that's mm. what I think that's where some of the pushback is coming back from people in the community saying, well, you can't be a Chicano if you, you know, voted for the Republican or if you um, subscribe to certain ideas or you vote a certain way. Right. I think. Yeah. I think well, that's a, a conversation that's still taking place right mm-hmm. now. I do. And I well, and I agree with well, I agree with some of the things what you're saying. Um, I think when you say people in the community push back, well, if those people are part of the community, then it's just really it's one side that pushes back against the other side, which is indicative of our broader culture. You have left versus right at each other's throats. I do think that there's, you know, who's really fascinating to talk to about this is Charlie Trujillo. He wrote Soldados in Vietnam, uh, and he's he's a good friend of mine. And, he, you know, I calls me all the time. Unfortunately, he just had to do surgery, um, but uh, so he wasn't at our premiere. But he talks about how he feels like a lot of people who have sold out, you know, people that he used to be activists with. He, he calls it the, tor- the Tortilla Tower. He goes, they get into academia, and he goes, and then they just all become Democrat Party voters, and they mm. don't think critically about anything. And I actually agree with him on that aspect oh yeah I've, I've met a lot of people like that and in, in yeah because i i for me for the and it's i mean most people follow me would know this i mean i am adamantly i think both the democrat party and the republican party are disasters and uh, i don't think they look out for regular working people i don't think that either one of them really care about immigrants um well that's what so, we used to have a la razonita party but that was right but even well, they disbanded and I mean, there's, yeah. there's still remnants of it. I mean, well, interestingly enough, uh, representatives of so Ernesto and um, uh, some other cats stopped by the the coffee shop the other day from La Raza Unida Party, and they're going to have their third Congreso here in Albuquerque next month. Nice. And so they they came by to drop off some literature and uh, and see if they could um, send P- after the Congreso if if they could come over to the cafe to hang out afterwards. So. Um, yeah. What are they're, your they're... thoughts on that, Brandon, on the Rasoni the party? Um, I think, you know, I think that my I'm a very, I think, pragmatic person. I've become more pragmatic over time with with politics. You know, I want to see some of the simple issues solved. And um do I think that there should be people that look out for the interests of Chicanos in the Mexican American community? Well, I think it's always good to have um people who have organizations that can lobby for their interests. Because that's how we get things done in this country. Like you, you get these organizations together, you get communities together, people share interests, and you kind of push for those interests. And I, you know, I, I am pragmatic, and I would consider myself relatively centrist. But at times, I can be pretty radical, like to other people, because the moment they start saying things like, "Oh, we should." kick everybody out and close up the borders and all this, then I'm like, well, they were here first. 
What are you doing? Mm. What are you talking about? And then all of a sudden I'm a radical again to, to other people. So I have mm. these really strong viewpoints on this still on the indigenous side. Um, you get into other politics like justice system and all these things, you know, I'm all over the map with my politics. But um, yeah, I, I think the basics, I think that is the basics of, of the Chicano movement in a lot of ways, right? Which is that um, they're indigenous to this land. And uh, this they were here before a lot of the Europeans came over here. And and I'm not, I don't say that in a context of, I just want to tear down everything that we have and start all over, I, you know, but I would like to fix a lot of things that we have. And I think that some of the agreements and treaties that have been made should be acknowledged. Those were made in good faith and they weren't kept in good faith. Right. And it shouldn't be controversial to talk about those things. Um, and I think that if, if everybody on every side is sitting down again in good faith to have those discussions and we can have solutions. So that that's kind of my, my thoughts on that. Um, and often you get politicians that uh, they don't operate in good faith because their goal is to stay in power, to stay elected. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of throwing out people that don't represent your interests. Because a lot of the times what happens is, you know, I, I see is essentially we have one side that completely ignores us and then one side that takes us for granted. And so we, we have to exercise our power as voters and the system we live in to incentivize. Well, not only ignores this, but is actively hostile against yeah. it. That's yeah. what I was thinking, I mean, too. Like, they don't they really ignore no us. They, they have certain things that they focus on about us that aren't necessarily great. If you know yeah. You yeah. And yeah, I mean, we have to create an incentive for them to follow through with some of those promises or to, to redirect their attention. And the only way to do that is to threaten their power. So mm -hmm. what I'm so. hearing is that you support La Raza Unida Party. Brandon, Loran, Maxwell, the new <laughs> candidate heard it here, for folks. La Raza Unida Party. <laughs> Maybe you should start your own chapter up in uh, so, Portland. One day I, I'm going to get involved in politics, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure of it. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of things that are come back to bite me in the butt um, from my competitors. But, you know, it well, is what it is. I wanted to ask you some questions um, for listeners who are interested in filmmaking and the filmmaking process. Um, I so love filmmaking topics. So yeah. <laughs> so you're credited as producer, director, editor, right? And the thing that I find with creating documentary films that let me know if you agree or disagree with me is that the when you're doing a doc, the majority of the directing comes in the editing. like when you're when it's really when you're crafting the film the documentary and the editing process that the majority that you're actually doing the directing and i wanted to know um how long did it take for you because it's a well-edited uh documentary so kudos there um it Absolutely. really flows together well um but what was the process like how long did it take you and just from a filmmaking nerd uh what what did you edit on what did you cut on yeah, um, these are fun questions for me because I'm a, I'm a filmmaking nerd too. Even though I really don't talk about film a lot on my social media, I talk mostly about politics and stuff like that. But uh, surprise, surprise! Look at that. I a documentary. <laughs> I love film, and people were surprised I decided to make a film. But people who know me in my regular real life weren't surprised because you know I wrote a screenplay a few years ago. They got optioned. But then the pandemic killed it. I never talked about that on social oh, media. But didn't I you just, talk about that in your podcast? I think I heard. Maybe I did. Yeah, yeah I, I optioned a screenplay. I wrote a play that was produced some years back. Um, so I, I love the arts, you know, and I, I'm an artsy kind of weird guy, more than probably what most people would assume. 
So, um, you know, when I had a chance to make this film, I was very excited. You know, when I learned to edit uh, before I dropped out of high school, I I learned back when we were doing ta- tape to tape still. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience editing, sitting down, editing tape to tape with VHS. Yeah. And then the digital stuff came along. But I've long loved editing. And um, when I left DC after I was writing, doing politics, the only side jobs I could get was video editing or copywriting. And so, I, you know, if it's, for me, it's always been writing or video. That's how I've always been able to get by, especially early on when I was right out of jail and had a felony. No one, I couldn't even get a job pumping gas back then. So it was always my writing I had to depend on or editing. So, you know, we had a lot of footage in this film. We had about 20 terabytes of footage. Damn. And, wow. Yeah. So if you, yeah, if you know what that is, that's a lot. And um, I, you know, a union editor wanted nine months to do the job and um, I couldn't afford it. And I didn't have that time because what happened was we we had only I'd planned to make the film just for the website and we we're going to do one premiere and that's it. But what happened is we started having the universities reach out to us. We had theaters that contacted us. So I got booked into another theater before I'd even edited the movie. They were just fascinated by the trailer. And so I sat down and I edited it in 90 days um, and I just did it straight through. So I sat down January 1st and I edited to March and then I, I didn't take a day off. I got my first day off in March. So I did 90 days straight. I worked my day job and then I went home. I went into the office about 9 p.m. and I edited till two in the morning. So I did that 90 days straight. And so part of the flow of the movie is because there was no turning back. I, I didn't have the luxury or the time to be like, I'm going to go back and fix this. I had to just go straight through. Mm-hmm. And um, it worked out and, I, and I'm and i thankful. And I, you know, I'm a big risk taker. So I figured the only way to do it was to, was to, I think, just jump on board, right? I can't doubt myself. I can't be like, what if this doesn't work? I just have to go 110% in and then hope that it works. And it did work. I thought it turned out fine. Now, there's some things I could have changed or go back and maybe uh, um, expand on and things like that. Yeah, I think there are things I would have expanded on. I could have made it longer too. You know, lots of people have been like, oh, it's hour and 23 minutes. You could have gone a little bit more, Um, which is great that people feel that way. Um, But uh, it was my first film, a first project. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of compliments from professional editors. I got some job offers, (laughs) which I didn't expect. Um, But I... So I'm happy that people have noticed the editing. Mm-hmm. What did you cut on? Adobe. Yeah. And that was another oh, thing nice. that scared me. So I, I, I like Adobe, but Adobe's fidgety. Their products can be very fidgety depending mm-hmm. on your computer. So right. even though it's working one minute, it, you know, you get an update from Windows or something, and all of a sudden nothing works. Sound card doesn't work. This doesn't work. So that was like a constant fear of mine for those 90 days that I was going to get, you know, some update that just completely ruined everything. Um, right. So I'm glad that I was able to get through. It still worries me. Um, you know, I have a million backup copies just in case I can't go back and, and change something. But mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the gambles I took in raising the money for this film was I spent, you know, five grand on a computer. because so I've never had a good computer um, that I can edit a long project on. And so uh, I, I needed one. So that's what I did. I, I had a computer custom made um, through some website I'd never heard of online and it turned out to be fantastic you know took a uh, risk yeah it was worth the risk and um we that computer i'm able to export a two-hour movie in 4k 
uh, in six minutes. Get out Damn. of here. Isn't Is that amazing? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, PC? dude. Damn. So, I mean, again, another computer thing. If you know, like, I mean, it's amazing. And so I, it was a great gamble on, on that computer that I had put together. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. You Stan, should uh, you. you should release a PDF with the specs so other filmmakers <laughs> yeah, can could. be like, yeah, I could. wait, how do I do this? So <laughs> so for, for listeners that might be wondering, okay, I want to do my own documentary. I have ideas. And, yeah. and, and you're sharing a little bit of yeah, kind of like... Like, talk uh, film all day right right um under the hood kind of stuff um those transitions that you did between the scenes where you show some footage some historical footage and so maybe you can uh share with the listeners like what were some of the sources that you used and what were some of the uh the things that you you had to do to acquire the licensing for instance yeah that that's a good question i was wondering the same thing you have a lot of b-roll and yeah. some of it is probably public domain stuff yeah. But then you've also got like a music video stuff, you know, and, and, yeah. and TV shows and, and movies. Right. So right. what were the steps you took um, to uh, to acquire rights for those? Yeah, well, it was a lot of it was uh, it was difficult. You know, it wasn't it wasn't easy. Um, it, that's part of the reason why the film took three years. Um, you know, I obviously we had to work with attorneys and lawyers. We worked with Ford Motor Company. Um, you know, there's a lot of people don't know that Henry Ford was is one of the largest holders of early American footage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ford was everywhere uh, in the early 1900s. And so he had guys that would film stuff and they'd put together like these internal newsreels. And so those newsreels were all given to uh, the National Archives when he died and things like that. And so we worked with Ford and we got a deed to use a lot of that old footage and restore it. So we nice. used AI to upscale and restore a lot of that footage. Um, so that took some time. We worked, I uh, had lawyers that worked um, in terms of, you know, how can we present these music videos without getting sued? Um, and uh, so part of that is obviously giving, giving them credit. You mm -hmm. see their names over that and then not going longer than we should. You know, mm -hmm. you, you've got a, you've got a finite amount of time to, to exercise, I guess, what would you call, um, uh, I'm forgetting what the term is right now, but oh, right. Um, fair use. Fair, yeah, use. fair use. Yeah. Fair use isn't what most people think it is. They think it's, oh, you can use anything and just yeah. talk about it and it's fair use. But that's actually not true when you're actually working with real attorneys. It's, you know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And so they, we actually had to go back and I had to recut a whole bunch of stuff to make it legally fit and work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even then there's still a few gambles that we took. Uh, but I'm a gambling man, so it's okay. Um, we yeah. got uh, <laughs> forgiveness, not permission. Yeah, <laughs> we, you know, well, you got to you got to think about the time it takes to sue somebody and how much they're really going to get out of it too. So I'm sure some people are going to look at it and they might, maybe they do want to sue me, but um, how much are they going to get out of me? Probably not much. Either. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. And and I ask because you know, there's um, I'm I'm friends with a lot of filmmakers and they've got like these projects that they're working on, but they're hung up on, they want to use this old news footage, yeah. but you know, they want to save up money to get the rights and they haven't looked into it. And I'm like, just cut it in for now and like finish your movie man like so here they're, they're letting the it just they're, they're letting it just stop everything didn't yeah. you co-write a book curly called um the make direct, your own direct your own damn movie direct, there you go. That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah so for those listening whoever want to make a movie here's how the 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 professional process is of dealing with lawyers so i agree with what curly's saying just make the movie because you can always go back and replug in those scenes if you need to, or find other aspects. Um, or trim, right? I mean, you can easier to trim. Trim it. I mean, 
storytelling can go a long ways if you can you, just because you don't have that particular shot that you want doesn't mean that you still can't create something dramatic i mean yeah. you see in my film i have a shot of the ocean a couple parts mm -hmm. right well that wasn't originally ocean it was footage that legally got removed i couldn't use it so i'm like gosh man how what am i gonna plug this with and mm -hmm. so i was like well he's already talking about being on the beach so i'm gonna bring in some waves and going underwater and just build something more dramatic with some that some extra stock sh shots and so mm -hmm. that's what i did but that's why it was like that but it actually turned out better than if i had just used the other stuff well it mm -hmm. worked because he's talking about sitting on the beach right drinking his yeah. uh, his wine with his right. new york review of books right yeah. and so and it just cuts together really well yeah. you just got to be creative you know but when when you make the movie you know when i made the movie you have lawyers look at it and and this is the process and it's it's a nightmare i mean i, I don't want to go through this again but this is what you do you take an excel sheet and then every scene and the minute that it shows up uh, is logged into an Excel sheet. So mm -hmm. hundreds of scenes. They're all logged in. You have to put the source where the footage came from and who owns the rights. Then the lawyers go through every scene and they evaluate it. They say, what's the potential for being sued because of a sound in the background? Is there music playing in the background that we don't own? Is there a logo appearing on a shirt that we don't own? Is this being owned by a company that's still in business or are they out of business? If they're out of business, how long have they been out of business? Is this in the public domain? How long has it been in the public domain? If mm -hmm. it's not in the public domain, can we get the rights to it? What's the cost? And to give you, you know, an example, I mean, we have uh, for the trailer, you know, we had one uh, piece of footage. I had to pay $500 to use for one second. And okay. uh, no, it wasn't even that. It was I think it was it was three or four thousand dollars. It was something that was expensive, but it was so I had already edited in there and I couldn't get it out in that, in that circumstance. So I had to pay. You had to bite the bullet on that one. I had to bite Trying the to bullet. Trying to think which, which footage it could have been. It was a zoot suit. It was the, uh, the zoot suiter, uh, on the ground, uh, with his clothes torn off. Oh, uh, the photo. The, yeah. The, the photo. I got charged an arm and a leg for that stupid photo. So who owns that, that photo? Uh, the, the owner of it licensed it to Getty. And so Getty, uh, made, Getty images yeah. will get you, they'll get you, they will get you. And so this is, uh, this is one of the things that I did in a lot of instances is I would find stuff that was owned by a rights manager and I would hunt down and find the person who actually owned it. And I would cut the rights manager out. And mm -hmm. so I did this with multiple people and I said, Hey, I can't afford $10,000 to use something for two seconds. Here's my project. I think it's really important. I think you'd want to be associated with it. Could we work out something on the backside? And almost everybody, except for one person, um, said, yeah, let's do it. And so I cut out a lot of rights management companies by doing that. And so how uh, much did you save uh, in general by doing that? Oh, I mean, we probably, uh, probably $150,000. Damn. Yeah. That's quite the savings. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a good chunk of change. It's and a very, there's a lot of archival footage in our film. And a lot of it came from, uh, from Vario Expressions, which was a show out in San Jose. I was going to ask you that. Where did you find that footage? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty yeah. cool. So that was they, the public access show, right? Yeah, it was the public public access show. And it's what's funny about that is, um, you know, the city hasn't, which is, shouldn't be surprising, has not done well managing it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they have some of it in archives and things like that, but... You know, I went to the city and I was like, this this is amazing footage. Um, no one sees it. You guys don't do anything with it. Like, um, I would love to make a film and spotlight this work um, because it helps, you know, tell this broader story. And they didn't want to do it. Like, they um, didn't want to no. do it? 
and and to give the, your audience a backstory, you know, I mean, these they had this cable access station. He'd take the camera and go out and film stuff all the time for years and bring it back. But eventually the cable access station went defunct. So he did, donated the reels to the city. And the city, being the city, they just sit on it. You know, don't do anything with it. They've digitized it. They do a web page. You can find it in archives. Um, but it they don't, they didn't, to me, they don't treat it with the reverence it deserves and um he did the community an extraordinary um uh, you know favor in documenting a lot of these years and so i i went to him and i just sidetracked the city and and i said hey what can we do like i'll i'll, I'll pay you to license the, the the footage um and you know of course we credited him in the film and and he was all for it, you know. So that's what we did. And then, so he uh, was able, uh, even though he donated all the material to this to the city, yeah. he was still able to go back in there and say, "I I I'm giving, you know, Brandon permission to use." Yeah, because I went back to the thing. Yeah, I went back to the city, and the city said, "Yeah, if you could get him on board to do all that, then okay. that then he can do it. Like you can contact him." But mm -hmm. they weren't really going to be a part of any of it. Uh, a part, just I don't know why. That's um, interesting because that brings up a. A question that I just thought of, like when you're shooting stuff, your own stuff for a public access <clears throat> channel, does who owns that footage? Is it the city ultimately? Because they're providing, you know, in a lot of cases, they provide the cameras, they provide the editing yeah. equipment, and then they, you know, they air it. So, but since it's public access and it's your work that you've created, that, uh, yeah, yeah, that's an well, interesting legal question. Yeah, it is interesting. We had to work with lawyers on that too. You know, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, we did, you know, we signed agreements with everybody and did everything we needed to do to check out legally. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things like that, you know, where you, ha you know, it sucks to bring in lawyers when you're doing these types of things. Um, but it's just one of those things you have to do because even if you're going to try to put it on a bigger platform, um, whether it's a streaming service or something like that, you have to have all your ducks in a row because they're mm -hmm. not going to they're not going to take on a film that's going to be a big liability for them. Well, yeah, you got to fill out your um, what's it's called your uh, errors and omissions, right? Errors and omissions, uh, right? Yeah. So you got to get errors and omissions insurance, and so you know most people don't realize that you have to insure films, and you can't insure a film without a letter from a lawyer saying that they've passed on all these things in the film because insurance company wants to know that there's no liability and if there is when they write the insurance policy they're how they'll work is they'll be like we'll insure all of this except for this scene yeah that's what they'll do yeah. they're like half so. of the footage of your movie is from star wars <laughs> yeah so. <laughs> so so brandon when, when you say lawyers um for the for the benefit of the audience who might be wondering well, what kind of lawyer do I get for these sorts of things? Is there a specific kind of like when you're looking for the the attorney to to assist you? What are you looking for? Yeah, how do, how do you so make that search? There's a lot of different lawyers. Uh, I think that the lawyer we used is um, he deals with rights. Uh, so like you know he deals with rights and fair use and rights management. You know, so basically just clearing clearance. I believe is what he's called. He's called a clearance lawyer. A clearance lawyer. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then the types of lawyers that you would have, uh, you know, help you sell it or whatever it is, those are going to be different lawyers. And sometimes you might have a, a, an agency that has different lawyers in those areas, but yeah, it all gets kind of complex. And I've learned this as I've gone along, you know, but, mm. uh, it's been a fascinating journey and I, and I have a really cool, uh, guy who doesn't charge me an arm and a leg. You know, he liked the project so much, you know, he's done a lot pro bono. So what you're saying is get a homeboy to do it. 
Get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wasn't my homeboy, but I, right. I met him and he's become a homeboy for sure. So a you have footage homeboy. from Requiem 29 in the film. Um, how did you, the, the footage of the August 29th Chicano moratorium, the, the police riot. Um, yeah. What was the process of getting rights for that? Because that's like f- super famous footage that you see in multiple uh, Chicano documentaries. Yeah. And I've always wondered, like, who do who do I, because I want to use some of that footage. Like, who do I, who do I contact? Well, we used, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of footage. Some of the footage I got, I don't even know how I got it. Um, because we couldn't even figure out the source on some of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have, I mean, I have a ton of footage. Um, because I just did so much digging around, um, with that, I think with the riots, we used fair use. So we capped it at a certain amount of seconds that we were showing it. And then we had to rearrange the dialogue to where it was, um, relevant to what we were showing in order to get past it. Yeah. And we pushed it. Yeah. We pushed it on, on that, but, uh, it was worth it, I think, for that film. It's, it's important. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. For the most part, with films that do with, uh, you know, fair use, you'll you'll be okay um, as long as you're kind of following those guidelines that the lawyers give you. you yeah. Know? I think it's very rare that you lose a lawsuit or even get sued because it costs a lot of money to sue people, too. Mm-hmm. So, and so, uh, one more, well, one more technical question. What did you shoot on? Uh, we those, shot on those interviews we shot on red yeah oh, so this wow. is another thing yeah so what i wanted a distinct look but there's also what i could get well we had another camera a b camera that we used uh, it was a different camera but um to shoot the film uh what we did is i actually approached one of the guys that shoots for netflix's uh, unsolved mysteries and uh the typical filming for a day is about six to seven thousand dollars right so if you're filming for a day you're talking six to seven thousand dollars. Well, one of the mistakes I think that documentary filmmakers make is they go to the different people. Um, they're bringing them so, all into them. Yeah, so they they blow six seven thousand dollars a day. So I got right. uh, this person to hop on board with the project by explaining to him why I thought it was important, why I thought he would want to be associated with it, all these things. And so I was able to negotiate a thousand dollars a day for filming, and use one hundred percent professional equipment. So we used a fifty thousand dollar red camera to yeah, film all cameras the interviews. Ain't cheap. Cameras ain't cheap, especially. I mean, those interviews were very clear and I yeah, mean, they were great. great. Yeah, I mean, professionally made, and and so it makes sense. That, I mean, that, that was a very clever move on your part to do yeah. that. Yeah. So what we did is we would rent. I negotiated a deal with Fairfield Inn Hotels, and I said, "Hey, wherever we're at, we'll use you if you can cut us some type of break or let us use the bigger rooms for filming." They said, "Yeah." Um, so we, we filmed at Fairfields everywhere. And so what we would do is for the most part, we would, uh, just bring everybody in and it was kind of a gamble because you're having to talk everybody to drive from all over the place. Even we even flew people in, but it was cheaper to fly somebody in because I could fly somebody in for 200 bucks, put them in a hotel for 400 and that's only six, $700. Whereas a whole day of filming would be, you know, in the thousands. So yeah. um, we'd fly people in and then I would do three or four interviews in, in, in a day. We would do three or four hour blocks. So I'd interview for three hours, interview for three hours, interview for three hours until 12 hours went by. And then we'd do, uh, I'd set up another round of interviews. So that's how we did it. And so we bust everybody in or flew everybody in and just interviewed for 12 hours straight and for three years on at different intervals. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that and being so, said, I, I want to point out to our listeners, all you aspiring young Chicano filmmakers out there, mm-hmm. um, don't wait until you have a fifty thousand dollar red camera to uh, make your movie. You've <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've literally got a a film production studio in your pocket right now that you could start telling stories with, and that's the the important thing I think is to get going and making stuff because um, that's right. A lot of people let you know I'm going to make my movie once I get this light kit, mm. or I could rent this light kit, or I could hire this certain guy, and and I see them just put off their movies forever and then they never make their movies because people need to understand that like when they see this film and this project that it seems like this is just my first thing right to people it's like that saying where um you know you you make it overnight but really you had like 10 10 years of hard work yeah yeah. it took you 20 years to become an overnight success right yeah so (laughs) that's kind of like with this like i've made lots of little films with cameras and phones and cheap i got one right here i got a cheap little canon that I bought mm. for like 50 bucks, right? This is an older camera. And uh, and I was doing stuff in high school and all that. And so for your listeners, yeah, you should absolutely go out and film whatever you want and make whatever you want. Because if you're a musician, you don't sit down and say, oh, I'm not going to practice playing my guitar until I have a professional studio yeah, recording. Yeah. You practice playing your guitar and you learn right. how to rock out. And then eventually, maybe you'll get that opportunity to record in a real studio. So my opportunity with just came with this film. And so I put all into it, everything that I could to make it as good as I could. But I did lots of little documentaries before um, that will never see the, the light of day beyond school. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, well, it, I mean, on, on that on that note, what what were some of the inspirations that you had uh, going into this? Because I remember back in the 90s, um, Lowrider Magazine did a documentary on the history of lowriding. I don't know if you remember that. And, yeah, and, and uh, so I, know I don't exactly know. If, so I don't know if that was something that was you drew inspiration from from that sort of material, or was it something completely different that inspired you to to make this this film? Um, I you know I mean just based my own experiences inspired the movie because um, I know how nuanced I am and and how different I am, and I just everybody I know is like that. So I wanted to spotlight those different personalities in this culture. But as far as from a stylistic standpoint. I mean, I love guys like Earl Morris, who did A Thin Blue Line. Uh, I love Werner Herzog, you know, who did Grizzly Man. Um, and so I, I like seeing more raw um, looks at the personalities behind things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like when you look at Grizzly Man by by Werner Herzog, what's fascinating, it's sure it's cool to see all the bears, but it's equally fascinating to see how nuts this guy is and, yeah. and to see how much he lo- goes out there and he loves it and seeing kind of just how kooky he is and this relationship that he has with people. And that's what makes the film. Right. Uh, Cause there's lots of shots mm-hmm. of bears out there. And I think with this film, even though you walk away and you say, okay, that was interesting. That was interesting, but it wouldn't be, I think, interesting without the different personalities in the film. Yeah. There's some great sound bites. There's some tension. There's, you know, it is what it is. And I, and I can only work with what I'm given. Um, and, you know, I, I worked with what I was given, with what they said. I, I did three-hour interviews with everybody in the film. Yeah. Well, speaking of Werner Herzog, he's legendary for his narrations, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Was there any point where you would consider narrating this film, or were you always just going to let it run without narration? Well, I had a I had a, a rapper, a hip-hop artist, that wanted to narrate really bad. And um, I, you know, I, I tried to figure out a way to make it work, but... It was just, it Kid Frost? No, but it's it's it was a big it was a big artist and uh, a a friend of mine. Um, but I 
I just it didn't complement the movie. And mm-hmm. um, truth be told, there's some people that were completely not didn't appear in the movie who did interviews with me. And um, it's tough, but I, from an artistic standpoint, you need to do what complements the movie and the storyline. And um, so that's that's what I I had to do. And it was just better to let them tell it. And a lot of people ask, well, why don't you put yourself in it? And I'm like. Because there's plenty of other people that can tell these same stories, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. people can listen to me any day. Uh, yeah. So, well, speaking of of listening to you any day, um, what tell us a little bit about the uh, the daily chela, like your your media empire that you've got <laughs> going there for yourself. I I heard whisperings at one point of a streaming service. Yeah, my and empire that I, I still can't pay from? the bills with. <laughs> that I'm still <laughs> working my day job with. <laughs> Uh, well, I do all, a lot of this because I, I love, you know, the culture. Um, I, you know, when I, when I went to DC, everything always goes back to my background, but like, you know, I was, I was a wild kid growing up. Okay. I was involved in gangs. I was in jail, all this stuff was drugs and alcohol all the time. Um, I chilled out after I went to, to jail. I almost did seven years off a, um, off a bar fight I got into where I hurt somebody more than I meant to. And, um, I came out and I'd always been writing before that, um, but I'd never taken myself serious as a writer. I was writing hip hop songs and I was just doing little things like that. But I had gotten um, published while I was locked up uh, and, and won a prize from uh, Writer's Digest. I never told them I was in jail. Um, <clears throat> and I ended up going to college to study political science. So I worked all these internships in DC and began doing policy. And so when I was in policy, I learned a lot and I kind of cut my chops as an opinion writer and um, making arguments for different things. And so that was when I realized that I think that I could write and get published and get paid. And uh, eventually I went back to the West Coast and I and I continued to do writing and editing in some fashion for some time. But when the pandemic hit, you know, I, I'd always hated D.C. because they would never let me talk about culture. It was always politics. I love politics, but in our community, politics and culture are the same thing. And so uh, when the pandemic hit, I was like, man, this is going to create a chasm in media. And I already knew that some of these places were going to go under. And in media, the only way you get in is if you find a way to get that seed in that chasm that opens up. So I raised, I was able to raise some money um, and it took a long time for those of you who have ever raised money. I, I went through about a year and a half before I was able to get money. And uh, I had to compete a lot. And, um, but I'm a very like OCD person. So when I'm like hung up on something, like I'm going to figure out a way to, to, or I'm going to lose my head. So eventually I was able to get money. And so we launched the Daily Chela and I wanted to spotlight different arguments, different personalities. I felt like even in Latino media that it was, it's all the same kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of woke stuff. Uh, not interesting. It's safe. You never get any real Chicano perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to create the Daily Chela so we can highlight different perspectives. And I do. We have all types of arguments that that come along, and that's kind of our brand. You might not agree with everything, but everybody knows they can send me a piece. And if it's by someone who's qualified to talk about it, then I'll publish it And and if it's respectful. Um, And so that's why we launched it. And I created an app that I wanted to put our own movie on because I wanted to cut out Netflix and all those those places. And I don't know if long-term, if I'll stay that way or not, but the thought process behind this was that, you know, I have friends who have sold things to Netflix and stuff like that. And what happens is they throw you a little chunk of money. 
they know that everybody wants to say they're on Netflix, so they lean on to that. But from a real business standpoint, they own you. They own everything. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything with the IP, and they can shelve it at any point, and you're Yeah, yeah, it could go away forever. Anything. Me, I have the option to make it accessible in places that Netflix couldn't. I get universities that reach out, that want to screen it. I can work something out with them. It's not all or nothing like it would be with working in place at Netflix. And we, you know, we can have DVDs and we got book you know, next year that we're going to put out. And so it just allows us to be able to try to grow the business and spotlight more voices and more people and hopefully tell more stories. Because there's a whole, to me, there's a whole other parallel universe in Texas where we could talk about uh, this history. And mm-hmm. and that wouldn't be me as well as it would be because I grew up on the West Coast. So I understand the West Coast better than Texas. But I got a lot of Texas homeboys. And I know, and they never let me forget. And <laughs> I think, you know, you got stories in Colorado. You got stories in Arizona. So there's lots of stories that can be told. But these bigger corporations, and I'm not even a, some anti-corporate guy, but I, I want to be the, like, the, the I want to take that Tyler Perry model where yeah. we aren't, answering to other people we're owning our own stuff and we're building what we think is interesting mm-hmm. and other and we're people telling our own stories on. we're telling our own stories the way we want to tell them because uh, one last thing sorry you really get me going on some of these things i had a streaming service tell me to drop the word chicano from the documentary what? i met with somebody and uh they went through some a lot of our archival footage and all that and they were like we like it. It's cool. They're like, but we feel uncomfortable with the word Chicano because <laughs> there was a bunch of people who worked there who I, were Latinx and uh. they didn't like it. And uh, they said, would you be okay with removing it? I said, no, it's the <laughs> whole point of the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you want me to make gone with the wind and remove the civil war. Like yeah. it's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's- they would have, you would have sold it to them and then they, they would have kept the movie exactly the same. They would just, have edited in an audio right. of somebody. It would going, be that weird edit where it was flowing. Or what <laughs> happened is there'd be a bunch of bizarre revisionism is what would happen. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that so like, and like I can't that video, live with myself. Right. Like a lot of the, a lot of those homeboys, you know, these are guys that I've known for a long time and, and they sat down with me in good faith. They didn't sit down with me so I can just tell it off somebody's gonna re-edit it and change everything yeah, to fit yeah. today's sensibilities. Mm. And that's something we we uh, we've railed on quite a bit on this podcast is the yeah, tendency like <laughs> or the Latin X revisionism to go back and rewrite our history to fit this, exactly. this modern the modern tastes you know sure and just you know the the Latin X movement of the sixties and seventies yeah yeah the the Latin X moratorium of August twenty well, ninth <laughs> exactly oh it's so weird I I got an email from somebody and they were like hey you know uh, we want to talk about the Latin X lowrider community or something like that and i was like there is no latinx lowrider community there's a chicano <laughs> lowrider community um but you know there there is differences between these terms you know i i think there's i hear people say oh well chicano you know got pushed back too when it came out and da, da, da. look you have people that march under the banner of of chicano right proudly like whether it's lowrider whether it's politics what's all these different things like there's what is latinx culture right? Listening to Bad Bunny. That's what my friend said. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny. My buddy at the LA Times said that. And I said, that is kind of interesting. What is Latinx culture besides whining? It is, I don't know what it is. It, there, There's nothing associated with it with any depth. And it's been around since 2012, 2013. Yeah. You're talking, you know, the, the word Chicano has been around for a long time, but long it had time. movements that were born out of it. Whereas 
with with Latinx, there isn't anything other than but, politics. It comes with political connotations. The difference, yeah. I would say as well, is that the word Chicano came out organically from the community itself. It wasn't one that was imposed from the top right. down, which right. is a difference with Latinx and Latino and Hispanic. Those were top-down identities that were imposed upon our communities as opposed to Mexicano, Mexican-American, or Chicano. Those were organic terms. Yeah, and some, you know, there's there's this argument here uh, where, they, where, you know, some people argue that, that, that the word Latinx was organic. I'm very skeptical of this. No. I feel like it was created to turn us all into a block, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. a commercial block to buy, become consumers or whether it's a political block to get us all on the same page uh, and exploit us. But in either case, um, I, I, it hasn't really gone above that 3% threshold yeah you know, hasn't been it, adopted and it's it seems to be so inherently anti-chicano like the people who really promote that identity when they uh you know approach me on online never in person by the way but when they approach <laughs> me online and they always have this chip on their shoulder that's like rooted in anti-chicanismo and i'm like man maybe you know it's best that we're not mixed in our peanut butter with our chocolate they right? ain't <laughs> yeah <saying>. exactly <laughs> Here, here's the here's the funny thing like they brand it as being a gender neutral term that's the point right we're gender neutral but i'm like the word mexican american is gender neutral mm -hmm. right mexican is gender neutral central american um i all those specifics are gender neutral so you can still get the same point across and there's plenty of gender neutral terms so to me, it's it's got a bigger purpose behind it. Yeah, well, they and, love that Latin part, that very um, that proximity to whiteness that Latin anything gives them. There's like a whole dirty history behind that word. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it's a fascinating other discussion, and uh, you know, I mean, if people want to use it, they can. Uh, I don't use it. Uh, I don't think the majority of people use it, and I, I think to me, it's a calling card. You know, people use it to talk to other people in their little bubble, in it, whether it's academia or whether it's media. And to yeah, me, like this, I'm saying it's a performative signifier. Yeah, exactly. And like, but to me, I think, well, what are they saying at the taco stand? You know, when I go mm -hmm. get tacos at 11 o'clock at night, they ain't saying Latinx. <laughs> and so let me get a couple of Latinx tacos. <laughs> <laughs> Taqueria Latinx. No, it's Takex. <laughs> yeah, Takex. Well, uh, so I'm very glad that you uh, did not, you know, succumb to the temptation of this uh, streaming service, whoever they were, to re-edit no. your, your, your movie. Because you could have called it American Homeboy X, too. You know? yeah. Yeah. American <laughs> yeah. Homeboy X. American History X is a good movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, but the, the thing is, I, I haven't been able to look at him the same since, you know, right. that role. I'm yeah. like, how do you play a role that good and not somewhat believe what? Yeah, you yeah, that's it's too like, good. It's like, damn, is that a Nazi? What's going yeah, on? <laughs> he, yeah, he did. He definitely did good. I went and saw that film in the theater with a bunch of homeboys. It was kind of yeah. funny back in the back in the nineties. Speaking of which, speaking of, I, I think this is something you have uh, talked about, discussed the the um, the swastika in Cholo culture. Can you say oh, a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, yeah. You see, well, you people forget that, like, you know, some of these early Mexican American gangs, like they were around before Hitler. That's how old they are. They they predate Hitler. So like when we when we see the swastika now, we think of the Nazi movement. We think of Hitler, but there was a lot of Mexican American gangs that were using that in the late 1800s and early 1900s before it became associated with fascism. Mm. And so you you see it in a lot of uh, early early graffiti photos. 
and you mm-hmm. still see it now. You see Dogtown uses it all the time. You downtown LA, you'll see you'll see Dogtown using it, and you'll see people that cross it out. But it's because they don't realize that this is not a Nazi group that's mm-hmm. putting it. This is this is a Mexican gang. Well, so here what does it represent? In, in, what is what does the swastika represent in you know, Mexican American gang culture? You know, I I've heard so many different interpretations of of what it means. I've heard that it it. Uh, that it, it represents um i made a long post about it a while back ago sometime where i, I kind of went and talked to a bunch of friends of mine and got their feelings on it but i think it used to mean um like pride in community it could mean that we're we're you know uh, a sense of you know we're number one type deal um uh, you should really go look at my post. Is it kind of like the Gonzalo's sentiment? Like yeah, something like that? That's kind of what I was thinking. And you know who's who's also written about this is uh is um Jose over at Southern Hispanics and uh, a Vario Archaeologist. I don't know if you ever seen that um Mm-mm. page. So he he does a lot of archival work with early Mexican American stuff, and he mm. he's got some of the most amazing photos I've ever seen. Um, and it's probably the largest archive of photos from early Mexican American gangs. Wow. And uh, so if you, he's got two pages. One's called Southern Hispanics and one is called a uh, Vario uh, Archaeologist. And that's, you do. He was you in your documentary, to, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, each page is different. One, he, he goes around and finds old stuff that's etched into sidewalks. Mm-hmm. So uh, when new concrete was being laid around LA, a lot of these old gangs would write in the cement as it dried so he walks all over la and finds these vestiges of of gangs and people that don't even exist anymore and takes photos of them it's amazing this history it's all around people and they walk over it every day they don't even realize it and so he he expands on some of that stuff and his southern hispanic page uh he gets all these early like zoot suit photos and things like that but occasionally there'll be a photo where you see a swastika Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody in the comments gets really upset, and then he talks about it a little bit. So, um, yeah, well, I, isn't I, there even re- a, a mural in in Chicano Park that has like a yeah, there is a, yeah a swastika in it? Yeah, and uh, I don't know what it what it means in that context. I mean, I think uh, there was some indigenous meaning there with it along yeah. the line too, because I know in India they also used it, um, and so I think that 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 symbol around the world for different cultures had different meanings and it was really kind of hitler came along and took it and turned it into something horrible mm-hmm. else. yeah well here in new mexico uh you could go to buildings here just in albuquerque downtown that have swastikas etched into them yeah but it's the design. swastika in the reverse too right Is yeah that yeah it's the um uh i don't know if it's the the dene version of the I was swastika. Gonna say hopi isn't it the hopi, hopi. But there's, you know, it's an indigenous symbol mm-hmm. that uh, that's Predates, used here in New Mexico right. still. Yeah, and I assume that's that's what always what it was over at uh, Chicano Park in San Diego because it's been there for a while. I remember seeing uh, some Latinx are freaking out over that mural, saying that here's the proof Chicanos are Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbass. Yeah. So, what is your? I mean, I know it's your baby. But what is your the the part of the movie that is your favorite or that you feel most proud of when you see it up there on the screen that just hits you like I'm so glad I did that? Um, you know, I mean, I think that my two or my favorite part is actually probably well, my two favorite parts are probably the one of the earlier scenes with uh 
uh, the Lowrider show, and um, it's right after Luis is talking. Uh, it was Chicanos creating a third culture, and then we get um, you know all this cool footage of this hop show from mm-hmm. the '60s. That's pretty cool. I like that scene. It was fun editing, and uh, the other the other part I really like was the World War II stuff. Mm. Um, you know that. There was a lot of editing that went into that some of those World War II scenes against that music, and uh, it was hard to string together. And I think in a theater, when you see it, it's very emotional. I mean, the whole theater is like dead silent by the end of it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and a lot sure. of that footage, you know, I mean, that that's a statement, I mean, about the horrors of war in a lot of ways, you know, because it seems like we're always on the heels of war in this world and in this country. And so I think that when you see some of those scenes, by the end of it, you're remembering as you're seeing these missiles fall on communities with people in them you know maybe maybe we can think things through a little bit more before we rush to war because mm-hmm. uh, these mm-hmm. are horrible things absolutely well, i was words. a little i was a little bummed out that there was no mention of espanol in new mexico the lowrider capital of the oh, world right. the lowrider <laughs> capital of the world yeah i make i'm very excited to be uh doing that uh that film having that film play out there and we'll see how the turnout is um, you know, with these other ones, they were they were packed. I mean, I had no idea even in Portland it was going to turn out 300 people, and we're going to do another one in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I know it, it was crazy. I mean, the show in Portland, was, both shows have been nuts. Both shows have been like event punk rock events, like not nice. movie events. Um, I mean, in in LA, of course, we had two disco balls and music going, and I mean, it was like a. And in Portland, I mean, they said there's no room for par- lowriders or for parking because we're on a main street. Did not matter, man. The right. lowriders came out; they were hopping all over the place, and that that lobby was just buzzing. Um, and so, you know, it's been great hearing from. There's things that can always be better. There's things that I could have expanded on more, but my, I wanted to focus on homeboy culture it's mm. not a chicano movement movie but you can't mm. not talk about some of these things without touching yeah, on the yeah. Chicano movement. so no. that's why it is the way it is but to see to hear so many people who are even outside of the mexican community right i had an old filipino guy who came out to me after the portland showing he was like i'm so glad you made this movie he's like you know our communities in the, in the mexican community we were next door to each other he's like so i knew all this and he's like, i've never seen this anybody put this together and he goes i just want to thank you and i've had people come up to me in tears he's like you know i've been low riding for 40 years he always called a criminal he's like finally does somebody just make something that makes someone feel something and see how we feel he's like is wonderful and so i, I think it's touched with people more than what i thought because mm-hmm. to me it's interesting but yeah well i, I thought it was resonate. great i thought it was great do you have a, a for people who want to see it do you have a calendar of of the tour yeah. of the release schedule so uh people can go to americanhomeboy.com um we got our first few critical critic reviews on on to- rotten tomatoes which, which we're happy about hopefully we'll get enough to get a tomato meter at some point but mm-hmm. uh we are updating the the calendar there constantly so we got a show coming up in new mexico which we're excited about we have tucson coming up with the lowrider show there we got another la show we have san francisco chicago and we're going to continue to try to work more cities. So we're working on San Diego and a few other places. But, you know, uh, these theater chains, they own a lot of these theaters, right? The studios come in and they strong arm and they say, this is the movie you're going to play. Mm. You know, if you're going to bring in other little indie flicks, then you're not going to get our big movies. So 
the reason why it's such a limited release is like I have to individually find independent theaters like the one Curly works with um, and say, hey, can we do this deal and do ticket splits or do something and work out these deals and everyone's different. And in some cases, like with uh, Sacramento, we have to give an upfront guarantee, you know, so I'm yeah. putting thousands of dollars up front in anticipation. I'm at least going to break even or make some. And so that's why it takes time and we have to get contracts signed and all this stuff. So we're working on getting into more theaters. We're pretty much so far we've, we're selling out everywhere. So we anticipate that we can keep putting them in places. And, um, you know, the initial plan was to put it on the app so people can stream it. But, but kind of what I'm finding is, you know, more people want to see it in a the theater than on the app. And, and there's a barrier there to getting people to download the app. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in my head, I'm, I'm contemplating, okay, maybe I'm going to push back that release. I'm open to putting it on streaming service, um, if, but the, probably only for a limited time, right? So maybe maybe for like a year and then we get all the rights back. I, I, I don't think I could ever sell it 100% completely and I definitely would never let anybody change it. And so I'm so cognizant, I think, of the community and, and of that. I just, I, it would really have to be a fine-tuned agreement for me to mm-hmm. be like, okay, that's fine. Let's put it on this. Because sometimes, and, you know, buried in those contracts, they reserve the right to chop things up, change things, or shelf things. Mm-hmm. So, and um, if people wanted to follow you online, what are your uh, what are your socials? How can people uh, watch your work or just communicate yeah. with you? Well, you can find me at Brandon Lauren Maxwell. Um, or Brandon L. Maxwell. And um, I don't really promote myself a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people find me, uh, but they're usually people from the, the the community in some sort of way. Uh, but I've never been one of those types where I'm like, I want to get 50,000 followers. Um, uh, <laughs> by the way, for people who are making films and want to do this type of thing, no investor ever once ever asked me how big of a following I have. So... You don't need some gigantic following. You don't need to be somebody important to do these things. What you need is a clear vision about what it is you're trying to do. And you just need to make an argument as to why it's good for them to get involved in your project. So don't let those things frustrate you because I meet a lot of people who are like, oh, I need to have this many followers and all that. I've raised money three times now and never once have they ever asked about my following. So it's like just people putting up a putting up roadblocks for themselves yeah mental roadblocks yeah yeah and and those those types of things can give you a false sense of what really matters as well because the truth is this i would rather have 500 followers who are 100 dedicated to what i'm doing than a hundred thousand followers who aren't so it might look better to have a hundred thousand followers but i would rather have people that are really like they're behind what i'm doing or they support what i'm doing or they engage um, and so there's a lot of people with lots of big followings, but it doesn't always mean what you think. Yeah. It does. Yeah. All right. So Brandon Loran Maxwell, producer, director, editor of American Homeboy. So glad that you came on the show. The documentary is great. Good job, bro. And uh, much success on this and all your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed the conversation, enjoyed the documentary, and we, we highly encourage everyone out there to go out there and, and if it comes to your city, to go out and, and check it out. Well, it was great to talk with both of you and kind of meet you face to face. So I, I, I could probably talk with you guys forever. 
And at some point, maybe we'll run in, into each other in person. And we'll be able I'm to sure we will. talk. Absolutely. Yeah. And remember, the truth is like medicine. It doesn't always taste good, but it is always good for you. It don't make no difference. What you wear in this country, there's people behind these clothes that have good heart. Again, this was part of what segregation did, is if you were racialized, or even if you were poor, you could only live there. Anytime we're trying to sort of understand Mexican-American history and culture, it's very complicated. You were proud of your Spanish last name. You know, we used to get them in Old English. Pants were perfectly creased. Dark lipstick, the Sharpie eyebrows. The Zoot Suit was all part of jazz culture. Not cholo, cholo. Back in the day, if you hit the switch in front of a cop, over. Pachucos were rounded up, beaten down. If you don't know that you're Chicano, then you're not. When they first started those gang injunctions, I said, no, that's not good. Something hit me too, the grenade, but it hit me right here in the eye, bullseye. (laughs) (laughs) When I worked in East LA, I wound up in the gang unit. We didn't call ourselves gang members. We were social clubs. There's a difference between a guy who's commuting to work and a car that's cruising and looks like a shark. We're talking about a whole new culture. We had our own slang. The calo was different. Chicanas and Mexican-American women were sort of using American culture. It wasn't just the way they dressed. It's the way they walked. They got beat up solely because they refused to take their clothing off. Then they were beat up, and then the clothing was taken off. Clothing was either ripped up and burned or blown. Streets ain't woke. You're going to get shot and killed. We're always different. We're going to be different. This is just the way around. That's part of us being Chicanos because that's what we went through. Thank you for listening to Tales from Atlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, Timo Itase. <laughs>